The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Brian Wigand. He is a professor of animal science at the University of Missouri. He is a state meats extension specialist and associate division director in animal science. He teaches courses in animal products, beef production and physiology, and the biochemistry of muscle. Dr. Wigand's research focuses on fat quality of food animals, as well as pre- and postnatal influencers of growth and body composition. I heard Dr. Wigand's presentation on alternative meats that he gave to the St. Louis Agriculture Business Club, and I thought the topic would be of great interest to Food Sleuth Radio listeners. I do want to mention that Dr. Wigand has an impressive educational background. He has a PhD in meat science and muscle biology from Iowa State University, He has an MS in quantitative genetics from Auburn University, and he has a BS in animal science from the University of Missouri. Welcome, Dr. Wigand. Thank you for having me. Happy to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I think it is so important for consumers to understand the marketplace, and it seems that the new alternative meat products area of the marketplace has been exploding and we just need a lot more transparency. But I want to ask you first, how did you become interested in meat science? I actually grew up on a diversified livestock farm, a very small operation in central Missouri. And uh, as a producer, we grew our own products. We had our own animals that processed and put into the freezer. And uh, as I matriculated at the University of Missouri, I, I was actually destined, I thought, to be a, a large animal veterinarian. And somewhere along the way, I... I took time to learn a little more about production in much more detail with regard to genetics and and physiology. And it actually wasn't until I went to graduate school and and worked on a project with with carcass value in beef cattle where I really kind of got attached to it because, as you said, my master's is actually in genetics. And I was working at Auburn University with a a study that looked at some of the heritability of genetic traits in, in the carcass side. And that kind of got me interested, and I, I left the genetics world, per se, and, and pursued a meat science degree at Iowa State University with a, an advisor who was near the end of his career and had, was very well known, and I wanted to take a chance to work with him. And it just kind of vaulted me into that world and kind of scratched an itch that I didn't even know I had, really. <laughs> That's so interesting. Well, what I find interesting is that you have a strong background in livestock rearing and processing and meat science, and yet we are launching now into alternative meat products. So how does a livestock farmer view alternative meat products? I think it would be easy. The the easy out would be to view them negatively. Mm. I think, but really, if I also come from a row cropping background as well. We grew corn, soybeans, wheat. So I think my approach to it, even though, yes, I am a meat scientist, I think my approach to the topic is a little more in line with 
providing protein to the human diet. And in reality says that if we look at the projections for a, an incredibly large population, and we always talk about the year 2050, I think that's just a nice round number we see. And, you know, we say it's going to be 10 billion to 12 billion people on the globe. I think we have to look at opportunities to feed those people, and protein is going to be one of those, obviously, nutrients that we're going to need. So I, I don't think it's an either-or. I don't view it as an us versus them. I, I think it's actually opportunity for all the boats to float, as it were. Yeah. I always have to question those projections of numbers of people on the planet based on some of the areas that I study, and that is climate change and disruptions in, say, our fertility rates due to environmental toxins. So I don't know. I hear those numbers, and I hope that we won't see more pandemics wiping out more of our population. But I do wonder about those numbers. Do you ever think about that? Oh, I do. You know, and certainly now that it's best guess, right? And yeah. It's based on it's based on what we know today. And again, I'm in line with you in that regard. Where there are some things that certainly will curb population growth. And if we just look in general, in especially the developed world, those rates of growth are are even negative in some cases. So I think that that's probably. I don't know how to say this, probably worst case scenario or, or largest population case scenario yeah. maybe in that model. Yeah. You know, the question, if we talk with population ecologists, and maybe it's 7 billion, maybe it's 8 billion. I think the fact is there will be more people. Right. And we are going to be, need to be positioned to provide nutrients for a much larger population than we, we have at the moment. Right. And from a dietitian's perspective, we want people to have access to the healthiest food possible nutrient-dense food that doesn't at the same time harm or further contribute to climate damage. So here we are in this space of alternative meat products. And before we did this interview, we had a conversation and I expressed my hesitancy to embrace some of those lab-based meats because they just sound to me a little, ooh, I don't want to go there. I think I'd sooner eat an insect burger or some of the maybe less highly processed forms of food. But that's just me. And I did some research looking at what kind of consumers buy these products. And it looks like people are buying or interested in these alternative meat products, largely because of health, and then second, because of climate. What do you see in the consumer research that you do? Where is the demand coming from? Well, I think my work hasn't been directly consumer Based, but I think just in giving, being out around the country uh, pre-pandemic, giving uh, having this conversation on this topic, I think you have a, a number of, of different drivers. The lab-based or the cultured meat products that come from an animal source, you know, I think those may be the demand might be coming from consumers that view livestock production as a as a welfare issue potentially. So maybe they think, well, if I can get the product, but I don't have to think about the production side of, of the animal, that might be a gateway in. Mm -hmm. Because I, I don't think, maybe it is also a carbon footprint. Maybe they view it as um, if we don't have cattle out grazing, we're not on such a large land mass and, and that the cultured system, if you will, occupies a smaller space. 
I suppose that in, in some ways that could be true. But those cultured systems, I mean, they're highly technologically advanced, mechanized systems for, for growing those cultures, and ultimately they have to be scaled up in order to make tonnage of meat, if you will, that would meet the demand should that demand grow. And if you stop and think about it for a minute, they're going to be grown in uh, stainless steel bioreactors or vessels. And as you think about applying that highly mechanized component, there's a cost involved in that. So I, I don't know that if it's in manufacturing that equipment, there's a cost involved to that, both in whether it be an environmental cost or a true monetary outlay. So those are some things that I think about. Is it a true trade-off? Is it a wash? Do you actually gain on it? I suppose some consumers might think so in that regard. Yeah. Well, we should talk about the different categories of alternative meat products on the marketplace. And I've seen them in different media. They're referred to as fake meat or alternative meat. And so I'm sure that the connotation that people have, depending on what we call them and how they're labeled, and we'll get into labeling here soon, but let's just talk about the broad categories. What constitutes alternative meat products? Well, I think really we're talking about really two classifications or two broad groups. We have the cultured meats, which would be derived from animal cells and grown essentially in a closed environment, fed a, some sort of a nutrient media to grow those cells to ultimately mimic a whole muscle product that we might get from an animal. So those would be animal-derived. And then the other larger, well, currently would be a larger category, would be the plant-based alternatives. And this isn't really a new area. It's, it's just an area where a lot more food technology has come into play, where the design and the flavor and the texture of the products that are they're coming from that system much more closely mimic the animal product, the whole muscle, the steak, the burger, something like this. So we really kind of need to think about it in those two large buckets, if you will, a cultured product from an animal source and then a plant-based source that's typically going to come from a, a bean or a pea, something along those lines. So those are the two big categories that we would think about. And then we also see, and I don't know how popular these are, but the insect-based kinds of products that have been formulated. I think I just read in the Meeting Place, which is a, a meat producer's magazine, that there the European Food Safety Authority has approved mealworms as a safe, nutritious human food. And whether we'll see those in burgers in the future, I don't know. I don't know either, but I, I think it is something to, to closely consider. Uh, I had a colleague at the University of Missouri a number of years ago that challenged one of my classes to think about if large terrestrial animals aren't used in meat production or protein production, what would be some alternatives? And, and he challenged us with uh, smaller animals of the rodent variety, but then his real challenge was what about insects and insect proteins? And he came at it from the viewpoint of uh, that, that it's really scalable, they have a really short reproductive cycle and, and can be produced really in large quantities. So, again, I, I, with you, I, I don't know if a mealworm burger will end up in a, in a mainstream menu someday, but I think it is certainly a possibility because if we really break foods down into their you know, components, 
those kinds of proteins are, are important to our human health. So there is an opportunity, I think, that, that that could be the case someday. Yeah, and it's interesting. This particular article says that in human applications, insect protein is much likely to trigger an allergic reaction than many other of the alternative protein sources. And these might be some of the plant-based sources and maybe some of those extra ingredients that have to be added in order to approximate the mouthfeel of a real piece of meat. So I, I think that, that that becomes an important uh, concept as we work our way through this. And as you and I have visited previously, the consumers today, uh, especially in, in more affluent populations, are, are really paying attention to what we'll call the cleanliness or the, the simplicity of, of food labels, and probably more so than, than they ever have. So as you indicate, to make a plant-based protein similar in its textural properties and its, its organoleptic sense, then food technology is going to have to apply a number of different ingredients to get there. And that, that probably flies in the face of some consumer behavior at the, at the current time where, where we see clean label. Even in the, in the traditional meat processing world, we try to make labels as simple as we can and still deliver on that product's identity. Hmm. Let me take one minute to just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Brian Weigand. He is a professor of animal science at the University of Missouri, state meats extension specialist and associate division director in animal science. He has won numerous awards for his teaching and his work in this space. And I just want to let our listeners know that I heard him speak about this alternative meat topic. And I thought this is so important for us to understand as the market becomes increasingly flooded with these kinds of products and to help us navigate the marketplace to see what indeed are we actually buying. In previous conversations with you and others who are meat producers, I really like meat from grass-fed animals particularly because I'm interested in something that you study, and that is the level of omega-3 fatty acids and CLA. And I wonder how these alternative meat products approximate what I consider to be the gold standard of meat. Do you see some of these beneficial fatty acids being added to some of these meat alternatives? I think that that is, that is a possibility as we go forward. And, and as you've indicated, that this is a, an area that I've studied really has been the thrust of my research program for 20 years is looking at fatty acid profiles and especially in the concept of feeding animals to change their fat profile and subsequently changing the meat profile itself. And I think what we've learned that some of these products some of these fats, you know, the omega-3s, certainly we, we can tie those to some heart health and uh, even some other long-chain fatty acids. You mentioned the CLAs, and, and those are more prevalent in grass-fed or forage-fed animals, and those certainly have benefits to our health. The challenge, I think, in some of that, as we look at some of the plant-based and these alternative products, if we're going to fortify them with those products, we know that, that those fats are also somewhat uh, more subject to lipid oxidation, mm. and it might be a little bit challenging for them to reside in those processed products without causing potential for discoloration or shortening shelf life if, if we end up with, with some oxidation of those fats where 
they seem to be not necessarily more stable in the the muscle product from animals, but they're in there in a pretty small proportion. And just as they come as a feed-through product to the animal, it seems that maybe they're they're more available. And and then if you have to fortify a, a food product with lipids or fats, we know that's a very expensive ingredient, if you will, mm. if we think about it in the marketplace. So that would add a cost to those products as well from a fortification standpoint. So I think you can we could get there. We could build that nutrient profile. But I think there would there would be a cost to that and there there may be some challenges where we would have to protect those lipids and, and extend their shelf life. So I think food technology might be up to the task, but it's certainly something we shouldn't just push to the wayside. Yeah. There was an interesting article in one of my Dietetic Association magazines and the analysis of these products was that most people are looking at them because they are more heart healthy specifically. They want to get less saturated fat and they want to get less cholesterol. So your comment that, you know, how do we create products, maybe not looking at the lab-based products right now, but some of the plant-based proteins, in order to have that mouthfeel that we're looking for from meat or for those products to approximate a meat taste and texture, we do have to add ingredients back that might not be so high on the healthy scale. I think that's that's an astute observation. In one of the products that I was looking at most recently, one of the challenges they had is, so take coconut oil, for example. Coconut oil, uh, you know, room temperature is, in fact, not an oil. It's It has a very, um, uh, very solid physical property to it. And if I were going to try to mimic a beef fat profile or a pork fat profile that is at a it that's chilled um, it's fairly firm and and we know that those animal based fats tend to be more saturated not completely saturated but maybe even just mono unsaturated and one of the ways to mimic that would be something like adding coconut oil but to your point coconut oil is a very highly saturated fat so even though that is a plant based fat and the question could be in the consumer's mind, are we paying attention to the label and how much saturated fat is actually in that product? And in fact, one of the, the products that I'm aware of in the plant-based world tackled that and, and, and had to take some coconut oil out of their label, and they added a, a different plant-based, truly an oil, to meet that fat content. And in turn, to get the textural properties, had to add more of a, a hemicellulose product to get to the the same mouthfeel. So what you're saying is very important because if you pull one peg out of the Jenga game, (laughs) you may have to add, you know, you have to be careful with what the unintended consequence might be to maintain that textural or that, that eating experience. Right. Well, you know, I've had some delicious bean and beet kinds of burgers in different restaurants And I think most people can understand that level of plant-based or even some of the alternative kinds of plant and meat combinations. So you might have, say, a hamburger that has had, say, mushrooms added. So at the end of the day, you're eating less meat, you're having a highly nutritious product, and so in that way, you're contributing perhaps to less of a burden or less of that carbon footprint on the planet. 
But some of the other alternative-based meat products, I wanted to ask you to help explain to us because these are a lot more complicated. So things, for example, like these lab-based or cultured products, how exactly are they made? I think that the the best way to tackle that is to think about uh, kind of the more general the general process, and a lot of these have proprietary components to them, so what I'm about to say is, is a more generalized version, but in the cultured product, you would actually harvest cells from a living animal, say a, a living cow, a bovine, maybe it's um, cells from the cheek or something like that, and those cells would be proliferated and grown in a, for lack of a better word, into a Petri dish, and, and they would be multiplied so that's kind of the starter, if you will. And then they're placed into what would be called a bioreactor, which is a large stainless steel vessel. And early on, I think this was a batch process. But in order to scale that up, it has to move to more of a continuous flow process. So the cells would be, the starter culture would be placed into this large vessel, and it's, they'll be fed a, a nutrient media Sometimes that is an animal-based nutrient media. Sometimes it, it is not. Um, there's been an effort to, to make some non-animal-based nutrients to feed that system. But if we think about how do, would you best make a skeletal muscle cell grow, well, it would be to have an animal-based nutrient media there. So those would grow, and they tend to now be in a continuous flow, so then you would harvest them is, is kind of, I suppose, the correct term where they would flow out of the bottom of this, this vessel, and those cells would be attached to a scaffold, which would be, I suppose, closely akin to the skeleton framework, because we are talking about skeletal muscle. And in order for those to, to grow and, and mimic a, a true muscle product, you would want them to grow in that fashion. So those cells would be attached to a framework. And then as they proliferate, uh, they may actually even be stretched physically stretched to give them the resiliency or, or the, the textural properties of a skeletal muscle. And, and then, for lack of a better word, they'd be harvested in, in, in a slab or a sheet that would mimic a skeletal muscle. So that is that's kind of the, the generic version of how you would go through that. There's actually another system that's looking at 3D printing. Wow. Of, of animal-based protein, which I don't have a lot of background in that, but I did notice in a recent article that there's a conversation about actually, you know, 3D printed food uh, <laughs> in that case too. Wow, so, that's so interesting. Well, we are closing in on time, and I promised earlier that we would talk about labeling because I think this is where the rubber hits the road. You know, when the consumer is in the marketplace, what are they looking for on the label? I'm very interested in standards of identity. I know there's been a lot of debate about, say, oat milk and these nut milks, like almond milk, for example. You know, can we call something that isn't from a dairy cow or from, you know, some sort of other mammal, can we say that that, that is milk indeed? And the same thing holds for meat. So what kind of labeling terms have been accepted thus far and what should we be on the lookout for? So it's, it's, it's a very important topic, and I, I think the milk example is a good one. And we, we've seen that be a struggle for the dairy industry with regard to labeling. 
Uh, in fact, uh, the, in with regard to these meat products or these alternative proteins, uh, Missouri actually was a, a state that led in legislation that sought to mandate that that those products that were not from a living animal uh, harvested from a, a typical livestock animal. There was an effort to to limit the t- meat terms that could be used. And that turned into quite a legal battle, and in fact. There's legislation pending in a number of states regarding labeling. And where it's really coming down is that there's the states that have legislation that wants to limit that, they're being challenged by companies in the alternative protein sector saying that that goes against their First Amendment rights uh, Mm. with regard to advertising and things like this. So really uh, the terminology that we're starting to see and there's been some middle ground i think gained and uh, you could look at uh, what came out of the state of mississippi that had a similar statute for uh, to to labeling and there's they're putting qualifiers they're saying there have to be qualifiers on there so vegan vegetarian plant-based and and they're using those as leading qualifiers in front of a term that you would normally identify with a a meat product from an animal, say a hot dog or something like this, or a burger. So it's really, it's unsettled right now. Um, And there's just, there's significant unrest in that where different states are having different stages of, of either trying to put statutes in place, and a lot of these states are those that have a very large livestock population. And they've seen what happened uh, with labeling laws with milk, and, and I think many of the, the livestock-producing states say we don't want to see a repeat of that situation. So they're digging in. So, you know, you mentioned the meeting place. I think that's a really great source to keep up with, with some of these issues, especially in the labeling space. There's USDA and the FDA. They they have different purview over food labels, and there's always there's a conversation going on with you know who who will have jurisdiction over that. So th- this is this is very critical, I, I think, right now in in the production of of meat. Yeah. Or alternative. Yeah, absolutely. You have been absolutely fascinating in terms of explaining these very very complicated issues, and. If people want to learn more, and we mentioned the the meeting place, is also an altmeat.net, which is a a side of the meeting place publication. Is there any place else that you'd recommend people go? Right now, those are the two that I spend the most time with. The, the I think the interesting thing about altmeat uh, that, that came out is that was, as, as you indicated, it's actually an offshoot of meetingplace.com, and, and Lisa Keefe is the editor of altmeat. And... Um, those are the two that I spend uh, the most time with because I think that they tend to also be science-based with a lot of their approach. And as an academic, um, that becomes important to me because I, I, as I go out and do extension talks and things like this, I like to stand on data and stand on science to back the conversation. So those are really two of the sources that I use almost daily. And as you know, if you're on meetingplace.com, you get an update um, both morning and afternoon with different topics in this area. Right. And as a consumer educator, it is so important to be able to follow trends. And I know that both of those publications do that. We unfortunately have to close because our time is up. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, 
Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Brian Weigand. He is a professor of animal science at the University of Missouri, a state meats extension specialist, and associate division director in animal science. He has received many awards for his research and his education. He teaches multiple courses in animal products, beef production, and physiology and biochemistry of muscle. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> 